Bibles this morning to Romans uh, chapter 4 this morning. Sunday morning, studying the book of Romans consecutively. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the men that are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. They'll get one in your hands marked to our passage we're studying today. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Romans chapter 4. Paul writes by the Spirit of God, and what shall we say that uh, Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham is justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man who, to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. David wrote, blessed are those, who, uh, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or the Jews, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had uh, while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that is, Gentiles, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and be the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. And therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And Abraham here, contrary to hope, and hope believes, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, reproductively speaking, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he, would also, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, that it might be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Well, that is a mouthful. Uh, we better pray. Lord, thank you for this chapter and what it is intended to speak to each of us uh, this morning and uh, the invaluable truths that are found here. We pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us a supernatural ability to understand your word this morning. Uh, we pray, Lord, and, and consider even before we begin our study uh, the greatness of your love for us as we've sung, and we are humbled by it. Thank you for your commitment to our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the life that, uh, for delivering us from our old life as we sang as well, and thank you for all of the glory of the new life 
in you and a relationship with you that you have brought us into. We pray for each man or woman that stands before you and has not yet uh, trusted in Jesus for forgiveness and entered into the relationship with you, Father, that they've been created for, that today something would make sense to them. They would heed the, the wooing and the drawing of your Holy Spirit in their lives and come into the life that you have planned for them. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in their life as well. And we ask all of these things, pray all of these things, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The 365-day-a-year case of allergies. Uh, I think that very often uh, chapter 4 of the book of Romans is uh, considered uh, by uh, even most Christians as kind of flyover uh, country in terms of the book of Romans. And in moving, as he does in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, moving uh, from uh, the greatness of our need for God, our need for salvation, as he establishes that related to the pagan, related to the moral person, related uh, to the religious person, uh, even to uh, those that attempt to follow the law of Moses, chapter 3, ending with this uh, incredible description of the salvation that God has provided to us in the face of the greatness uh, of our need, uh, and as that makes up the latter portion of chapter 3, and then uh, most often there's the, the temptation or the desire to move right in then to chapter 5, uh, where the subject of all of the blessings that are now ours as Christians as a result of our trust in Jesus begins to be laid out all the way through uh, chapter 8. And I think that uh, chapter 4 is, is so often is viewed as just kind of this uh, theologically dense kind of thing. It just contains a bunch of technical Old Testament kind of stuff concerning Abraham uh, that not only do I not understand, but I don't think I want to understand it, and let's just get on with the practical stuff that's in the book and, and what's important. But the contents of Romans chapter 4 are absolutely foundational to Christianity, and as a result, very foundational to your personal relationship with God and uh, mine as well. Uh, without Romans chapter 4, I don't think that any thinking Christian uh, could ever uh, honestly be confident in claiming the promises that follow chapter 4 in the rest uh, of the book because chapter 4 lays out the Old Testament foundation for justification by faith, the fact that mankind has always been saved on the basis of God's grace and received uh, by faith, that this is not just an old, a New Testament truth, but that it is an Old Testament truth as well. And uh, it, this is it, it, the ignorance, I think, of, of chapter 4. It is the ignorance of it that ha has most of the world. And I think many, many Christians, if not most Christians, believing uh, that salvation in the New Testament is based upon faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but that under the Old Testament, people were saved on the basis of keeping the law of Moses and uh, practicing the sacrifices, that they were uh, 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 made righteous before God on the basis of these things. And so, chapter 4 uh, corrects and, and, uh, and affirms uh, two kind of questions that we can be asked or observations. And the thing that it affirms within our hearts as Christians is that salvation uh, as a received by, given by God's grace and received by faith, it is every bit as much an Old Testament truth as it is a New Testament truth. It also answers the question that uh, if you interact heavily with the world around you, it will be asked of you sooner or later. And, uh, and especially if you go to Israel or especially if you have Jewish friends. 
And uh, because in their minds, uh, preeminently, they look at the New Testament, they look at justification by faith, and they will raise the accusation and declare that that was an invention of the Apostle Paul, that you can't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. That's a New Testament invention. In fact, Jesus didn't teach it. It's an invention of the Apostle Paul. And Romans chapter 4 blows all of that to smithereens. In chapter 3, Paul repeatedly declared that our salvation is not something that can be earned by good works, not even by the keeping of something as good as the law of Moses, because as he laid out, nobody can keep the law of Moses. And so why would we attempt to keep it as a, a means of establishing our righteousness? And as a result of that, that the law of Moses, it exposes us as sinners in need of a Savior. And then he lays out the fact that through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive salvation. You might look back into chapter 3. If you're not inclined to do so, uh, you can just take my word for it. But you notice the repetition, and there's no vain repetition on Paul's part as he's just driving home this point with a Jewish uh, uh, Christian and non-Christian in mind supremely. But he writes about this salvation by faith, verse 22, that it occurs through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, to all and on all who believe. Verse 25, through faith. Verse 27, by the law of faith. Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Uh, Verse 30, by faith. Verse 30, through faith. Verse 31, through faith. And all of this he's driving home over and over and again. I mean, he's not taking anything for granted in his listener that salvation cannot be earned by God. It is to be received as a gift from God. And, And he then went on to, uh, I think, very dramatically and boldly declare that this, again, this truth is not merely a New Testament truth, but it's an Old Testament truth. And I'd like you to look at these two verses, if you would. Excuse me. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he writes, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed uh, only in the New Testament. Now, that's not what he says. It is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's a Bible name for the Old Testament. You go down into chapter 28, and he says, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, in all of this, it's important to realize that what the Apostle Paul in the early church was teaching here was in a, a absolutely stark contrast to what the Jews believed about salvation uh, at the time, and is largely believed by Jews even to this day. And that is that a person is saved, number one, by being a physical blood descendant of Father Abraham. Uh, Number two, by being then circumcised, and number three, by obeying the law of Moses, including all of its commandments, including all of the sacrifices that are involved in the law of Moses. In other words, that salvation is earned from God on the basis of a godly lineage, on the basis of keeping religious rites and doing good works. You remember concerning the godly lineage that John the Baptist dealt with this continually and his warnings to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as they came out to the area of the Jordan where he was baptizing, and he said, do not think uh, to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He was telling them, Don't trust in the fact that you are saved or made righteous before God solely because you're a physical descendant of Abraham. Concerning the rite of circumcision, Paul was constantly being attacked uh, for his teaching that circumcision was not a requirement of salvation. In Acts chapter 15, concerning the Jewish council where uh, Christians who had come out of a background of uh, being Pharisees 
and, uh, and so forth. They came and, uh, and declared, even in that council, declared that salvation of the Gentiles and salvation uh, in general uh, for anybody, that it required circumcision. They rose, as it, it were told in that chapter, and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. In the context of the law of Moses in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and its inability to establish a righteousness in any of our lives is even if we could keep the law of Moses, and none of us can. Jesus declared, therefore, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Translation, no one gets into heaven on the basis of the work of works or on the basis of keeping the law of Moses. And thus, now here in chapter 4, Paul goes on to demonstrate the fact that righteousness imputed to someone on the basis of faith as opposed to works. Again, it is not just a New Testament truth, but an Old Testament truth as well. So, he has stated it in verse 21, as we read, of chapter 3, and again in chapter uh, 3, verse 28, and now in chapter 4, he goes on to illustrate it and prove what it is that he has stated. And so, Paul shows us that salvation has always been based upon a faith in Jesus, uh, the Christ. In the Old Testament, salvation was on the basis of trusting in God's promise to send a Savior into the world uh, and, and that that Messiah was coming, and in, and, and in faith looking forward to that uh, Messiah who was to come into the world uh, to provide the forgiveness of sins, and then uh, and all of that was uh, the Messiah who was to come typified by the law, typified by all of the sacrifices. They all uh, spoke of Jesus who was uh, to come for them. In the New Testament, salvation is on the basis of looking back in faith on Jesus' death, His burial, His resurrection, and providing us with the forgiveness of sins. And all of it is exactly as Jesus declared to the Jewish religious leaders in His day, that both Old Testament and New Testament uh, spoke to Him as Messiah and salvation found in Him. Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of His day, and He said, "'You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me.'" Salvation in the Old Testament is not about being saved and keeping the law. It is uh, salvation under the Old Covenant was every bit as much had to do with me and my sacrifice and looking ahead to it as ever it did subsequently here uh, in the New Testament. And as the Holy Spirit puts it through the writer of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, declaring uh, of Jesus that the volume of the book is written of me. The entire Bible speaks to uh, Jesus. And, uh, and who better, I think, to demonstrate this truth than the Apostle Paul as he tackles this. I mean, who else almost in the New Testament could tackle the subject for us uh, and write chapter 4 by the Spirit of God? Here you have the Apostle Paul not only deeply grounded in the New Testament truth, but in the Old Testament truth as well. I mean, he knew the Jewish mind very, very well. He knew their doctrine. He knew their, uh, their teaching. He knew what they were trusting in, and he knew how it was a violation of what the Old Testament was intended uh, to be. And Paul described himself in Philippians chapter 3, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, uh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, in the law, blameless. And, and so, here he is. He rises up now to make this case. It is interesting to realize that under the law of Moses, if you are going to establish any kind of fact before a court of law, 
that it required two witnesses in order to establish uh, that fact. And so, what Paul does here in chapter 4 is he now proceeds to uh, produce three witnesses from the Old Testament, uh, three of the most famous uh, characters and figures in the Old Testament uh, to establish and to testify to the Old Testament roots of justification by faith. And the witnesses are none other than Father Abraham, the father of the very nation and, and people of the Jews, and then Moses, the great lawgiver, and then King David, the greatest king uh, in the history of Israel. He begins his illustration of justification by faith and establishing the Old Testament foundation for it with Abraham in verses 1 uh, through, uh, through 4. And Paul begins with Abraham and making his case knowing as a Jew that if he could show from the Old Testament Scriptures uh, that Abraham was declared righteous in the eyes of God on the basis of faith and not on the basis of works, then to a Jewish audience, the argument was over. The case was made. There could be no dispute if he could establish the fact in and through the life of Abraham. And that's why he begins there. And so, chapter 4 and the first four verses, as he calls Abraham now into the witness stand uh, to uh, bring this forth, he's arguably uh, uh, calling the most highly esteemed character among the Jews. Again, the very father of the Jewish people, the man uh, by uh, whom God brought the Jews into their very existence, the first great patriarch of the Jews of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, fame. Twice in the Old Testament, he's described as a friend of God, and here he is someone who didn't merely know about God, but he knew God deeply. He knew God personally, not through the sacrificial system, not through the law of Moses. He had a personal relationship uh, with God. And that what does Paul tell us was the foundation and the source of Abraham's relationship with God. He tells us in verse 3, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Paul here declares that God counted Abraham righteous in God's sight on the basis of believing, on the basis of faith. Uh, and in believing uh, God. It's fascinating to realize that this is the very first time uh, in the Bible that the word believed is used, and uh, the context in which it is used is how to establish a right standing before uh, God. The Bible passage that uh, Paul is quoting here in, in, uh, in chap uh, chapter 4, verse 3, comes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, where uh, God promised Abraham as he's standing under a starry sky somewhere uh, under, under that starry sky in, in the vicinity of Canaan in, in the Middle East, and even though Abraham was now 86 years old, childless, uh, due to Sarah's uh, barrenness of, of her womb, and, uh, and he's told that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars uh, in the heavens. And the Bible says that God, Abraham simply believed the promise of God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He didn't do, uh, you know, like uh, Mr. Vargas, my junior high uh, gym teacher, he didn't say to Abraham, now, get down and give me 50. Uh, he, he did, there were no works involved in this at all. Abraham just said, uh, Abraham just simply believed uh, at, at that, that God made the promise and God would keep that promise. No works, just in, and as he believed in God, God imputed righteousness to him. That is a right standing before God on the basis of his faith. This is also fascinating in the light of the Jews' resistance to uh, justification by faith as opposed to works, uh, namely, in the keeping of the law of Moses. 
So Paul's doing a couple things here. He's drawing, he's making Abraham an illustration, the father of the nation, the illustration of this great truth. But who is he quoting? Who is the author of the first five uh, books of the Old Testament? Moses. He's quoting from uh, the, the books that were uh, written by uh, Moses himself. In other words, uh, Paul is, is saying by implication that here you have Moses, the great Jewish lawgiver, and he's the one that writes of this imputation of righteousness to uh, Abraham on the basis of faith, and Moses doesn't have any problem with it at all. So why do you claim to be uh, defending and representing Moses uh, in, when, uh, when Moses was all for what God did in establishing righteousness, righteousness on the basis of faith with Abraham? And so Paul's first point is that justification by faith alone is not a New Testament invention, but that it is as old as Genesis chapter 15, and that it is testified to by both the Holy Spirit and by Moses, and it's illustrated in none other than Abraham himself, the first and the greatest of Israel's patriarchs, the father of uh, the very uh, uh, nation. It is very, very important for each of us as Christians to realize that the doctrine of salvation by faith, that salvation is not earned, uh, but it is offered to us as a gift by uh, God that we receive it by faith, that that is not a New Testament truth that violates the teachings of the Old Testament or that it is merely an invention of the Apostle Paul, again, as many people accuse today. And if, if Paul was mistaken, then John the Baptist was mistaken, because he taught in John chapter 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son, speaking of Jesus, has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but has the wrath of God abiding upon him. The apostle Peter taught the very same thing in preaching to Cornelius, that Roman centurion in the city of Caesarea in Acts chapter 10. He declared in that home that was crammed full of Cornelius' family and friends, he said of Jesus to him, all of the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. The apostle John chimes in in this regard in his uh, gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Salvation is based upon faith, Old Testament and New Testament. And of course, uh, Jesus taught this very truth throughout his entire public ministry in life. Paul was merely teaching what Jesus uh, had been consistent to teach all of his public ministry. Famously, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. John chapter 12, verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness." To a great multitude that came uh, to Jesus, uh, they asked him, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? They're completely dominated by the idea that you get to heaven by religious works, keeping the law of Moses, being of the physical lineage of Abraham, and being circumcised. And so Jesus is a rabbi now. What do you, where do you chime in on all of this? What shall we do that we may do the works of God that we can be qualified? qualified for heaven. That's the idea behind the question. And Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He, that is God the Father, has sent. 
And in fact, uh, Jesus, you might remember, declared to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he created quite a stir when he did in John chapter 8. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. You think you're the big authority on Abraham and what Abraham thinks of me and what he thinks of my message? Abraham uh, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad, probably referring to a Christophany in the Old Testament, probably, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, probably in Genesis chapter 18 as, as uh, the Lord appears to Abraham prior to the destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, Abraham, far from being troubled by Jesus, who he was, what he taught, salvation and righteousness being received as a gift uh, from God uh, by means of faith, that uh, he rejoiced in it and he was glad. Now, uh, in verses 5 through 8, and, and don't be alarmed, uh, we will, uh, uh, the progress can seem slow. Uh, we're, we're looking at large sections here and encapsulating. If this was a Jewish audience or a Messianic fellowship, then you would, you know, you'd bog down on every single verse, but I'm not going to do that. So, what Paul does here now in verses 5 through 8, in order to establish the facts in this court of law, so to speak, that's going on, as he's laying this case, as he calls a second witness into the witness stand from the Old Testament. And who does he call into the witness stand but none other uh, than uh, uh, King David himself, in order to have him testify to the Old Testament roots of uh, salvation on the basis of uh, grace and faith. You remember, uh, perhaps, concerning King David that uh, there were two great sins that he committed in the course of his life and his reign as a king. Uh, the first great sin that he committed was his sin of adultery with a married woman by the name of Bathsheba. Uh, he then committed uh, a second sin, compounding the sin of the first, uh, the sin of murder, by arranging for the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah uh, the Hittite, in battle in order to cover up uh, his adultery. The interesting thing about those two sins, adultery and murder, is that under the law of Moses, there was no sacrificial covering for them. There was no offering, no sacrifice, no world of sacrifices that you could offer that would provide the forgiveness or the covering of the sin of adultery or the sin of murder. They were capital crimes. They were capital sins uh, under the law. And yet, as if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and as, da as Paul brings out here, and yet God forgave David those sins, and he did so completely independent of the law of Moses or the Jewish sacrificial system. And he did so purely as an expression of his amazing grace. And David took notice of it, and in Psalm 32 that he wrote along with Psalm 51, following his restoration after his sin, he quotes here from Psalm uh, 32, but David noticed all of it, and he offered up praise to God in both Psalm 51 and, and 32, uh, that uh, his psalms of repentance concerning this chapter in his life, and Paul quotes two of those uh, verses from Psalm 32 in the passage, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so, Paul gives uh, the Jewish audience and to us today another example from the Old Testament of God forgiving and declaring a person righteous, not on the basis of law or on the basis of bloodline or on the basis of uh, sacrifices or good works, but solely upon the basis of God's grace. And then in verses 9 through 12, Paul then testified 
to the Old Testament roots of justification by faith, independent of works at all, by bringing up again one of the main things that the Jews trusted in for the purpose of establishing a right standing before God, and that is the right of circumcision. And what Paul does here is, again, in my mind, absolutely fascinating. And what he does is he simply reminds us, and principally the Jewish reader as well, but he reminds us that God declared Abraham to be righteous a full 14 years before he ever established the right of circumcision. And as we have seen, God declared Abraham righteous on the basis of faith in Genesis chapter 15. But it wasn't until chapter 17 of the book of Genesis that God established the right of circumcision with Abraham and with his descendants. And the time gap between chapter 15 and 17 is fully at least 14 years. In other words, Abraham was declared righteous by God not only while uncircumcised, but that Abraham was saved and declared righteous by God for 14 years before he was circumcised. In other words, in all of this, God makes it perfectly clear to anyone who would be willing to see it in the book of Genesis that the rite of circumcision was never intended by God as a means by which that a man might, on the basis of good works, try to earn or, or to self-righteous themselves into heaven uh, or into a relationship with God, not only based upon the law of Moses, but upon the rite of circumcision. And further to declare to us that as Abraham became righteous, while uncircumcised, so too the entire Gentile world, the entire uncircumcised world, both then and today, to, that he is as much their spiritual father as a result as, as he is of the Jews. And Abraham revealed to the world that when the Messiah came, he would provide righteousness to both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, and all of it uh, illustrated in Abraham. Well, this then raises the, the question, uh, what then was the rite of circumcision intended to be? If it wasn't, it isn't a means by which uh, the, some religious rite has been given to us by God by performing it now, we make ourselves acceptable in the sight of God, then what it, it was the rite of circumcision intended to be in the eyes of God? And Paul tells us in verse 11, he declares to us that it is a sign, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was still uncircumcised. It is a sign. Circumcision was to be an outward sign in Abraham's life of an inward reality. It's very much like water baptism in the New Testament. Uh, we do not uh, get baptized, water baptized as Christians in order to be saved. No one should ever be water baptized who isn't saved. We are water baptized because we already are saved. And what water baptism represents outwardly is what has already happened spiritually and inwardly in our life before we ever get water baptized, and that is that we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And in the same way, Jewish circumcision was to be an outward sign uh, to the Jew of their relationship with God on the basis of faith, on the basis of the same thing that declared uh, and was behind Abraham's being declared righteous. It was to be an outward sign of their relationship with God uh, based upon faith and their commitment to be obedient to God now in response to that salvation on the basis of, 
of faith in, in their relationship with God. Now, Paul then leaves it in verses 13 through 16, and he further reminds us here that Abraham was declared righteous by God on the basis of faith long before the law of Moses was ever given by God to Moses. I want you to read verse 13 uh, uh, with me as I read it out loud. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to, uh, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, in, impossible to overstate this. In Paul's day and in Jesus' day, Jews were trusting in being descendants of Abraham in the right of circumcision and in the keeping of the law of Moses as the means by one, one day meriting heaven. And, and Paul as we, has already shown them that Abraham was saved or declared righteous on the basis of faith. And if he wanted to follow uh, the example of their father Abraham, that they should do the same. Additionally, he exposed uh, the flaw of trusting in circumcision because it was given 14 years after Abraham had been declared righteous by God, revealing the fact that God never intended uh, circumcision as a means of attaining righteousness uh, before him. And here now, Paul delivers the death blow to all of this works-oriented understanding of the Old Testament by exposing the deep flaw involved in trusting in the keeping of the law of Moses for salvation. And he does so by simply pointing out the fact that the law of Moses was given by God to the children of Israel fully 430 years after he had declared Abraham to be righteous in Genesis chapter 15, after he had illustrated through Abraham that righteousness and salvation is a gift from God received on the basis of faith. In other words, God declared Abraham to be righteous on the basis of faith 430 years before the law of Moses ever came into existence. So how in the world can it ever be understood to be as something that God has provided to mankind for the purpose now of earning or working our way to heaven? And Paul's point is, is that clearly God never intended that for the law of Moses. And Paul then declared in verses 23 through 25 that here as he writes all about Abraham uh, so that we would understand how he was declared righteous in the eyes of God on the basis of faith. Uh, but so that we would understand that this is how God has always saved people. Under the Old Testament and under the New Testament, and it is still how He saves people today, based upon a simple faith in God's promise to forgive us of our sins and to save us and to make us righteous if we will simply trust in Jesus Trust in the Savior and the salvation that He has introduced into mankind. Trust in the the Savior that we look back upon in the same way that the Old Testament saints looked forward to His coming and His uh, sacrifice. But all of it, uh, uh, the grace of God received into our lives on the basis of faith. Now, in verses 17 to 22, and I'm very, very nearly done here, we have the rest of the story concerning Abraham. So we know that he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness in Genesis chapter uh, 3, uh, 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 Genesis chapter 15, uh, uh, rather. 
And the promise that God had given to him as he looks up into that sky, and here he is barren all of these years, and, uh, and, and not unfertile himself, but his wife Sarah, uh, barren, uh, he 86 years old, she is in, in her uh, 70s, the promise is given, he believes the promise uh, that God is going to provide him with uh, descendants that are going to be so many many a number, uh, that they will uh, be in number as the stars of the sky, speaking of the Jewish people and the nation that would, would follow. It, it, and, and so, as that promise is made, that promise fully came to pass. And uh, despite, ultimately, when it did come to pass in the birth of, of Isaac, Abraham was 99 years old. Uh, Sarah was 89 years old, and uh, long past uh, the change of life or menopause, and uh, she had been barren all of her life. And, uh, and when you remember, it's kind of curious, funny in the Old Testament when Abraham comes to Sarah and says, by the way, I have had a conversation with God, and we're going to have a child. And he's 99 years old, she's 89 years old, and she makes an interesting comment to him. Uh, she, she laughs at the, at the idea, and she laughs at the idea that she's now going to have a child with him after trying all of these decades to have a child, uh, even after God had given the promise for uh, many years. And then she says, uh, she said to Abraham, she said, I mean, will we even uh, experience pleasure again, uh, let alone uh, have a child out of it, uh, which tells us that, uh, um, well, you can figure it out. <laughs> it tells us that Abraham wasn't fully functioning on this level at 99 uh, years old. So, it wasn't just Sarah. I mean, a a humanly speaking, it, it just… Uh, it, it, it was impossible as, as you would, you know, try to claim uh, that promise. And yet, uh, despite uh, all of this, God did what was physically impossible for them uh, to do for themselves. They ultimately did have a son named Isaac, uh, who later, uh, you know, had a son named Jacob, and as a result of uh, those three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have the Jewish people today. And what Paul is declaring here is he closes up uh, the chapter, and some of you uh, may even have wanted greater depth in handling the chapter. Uh, I doubt it, but some of you might have, but I've given you an overview of it, and you can dig in it on your own. But, but what Paul is saying here is he tells us the rest of the story, the fulfillment of the promise uh, to, to Abraham uh, here in the same way Paul is saying as he closes up the, the chapter that each of us uh, has absolutely zero hope of ever being able to save ourselves, any more than Abraham and Sarah had in, in producing a child at this point in their life. And so, we trust in God to do what is impossible for us, to forgive us based upon our faith in Jesus, and He does so. And, and it is impossible for us to save ourselves, and so as we trust in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us, it is put to our account, and how sure is this salvation based upon a faith in Jesus for both the Jew and the Gentile? Well, we're given a glimpse of it in the book of Revelation chapter 5 where that great crowd is described there of those who are uh, saved in this way, both under the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me close by reading uh, three or four verses to you. And now when is speaking of the heavenly scene that will, as Christians, one day be a part of. And when he, that is, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and here it is, and have redeemed us to God by your blood, 
out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth, exactly as God had promised to Abraham will come to pass, even when he promised Abraham earlier in all of this in Genesis chapter 12, that he would make him the father of many nations. Hallelujah. Salvation is a free gift that's received by just simply trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, to begin a relationship with God, the hope and the confidence of heaven, and that has been the message of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you have never done that before, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship as well. So here you are, equipped today as Christians for anywhere in the rest of your pilgrimage in life if you hadn't been equipped uh, prior uh, to this. Uh, to have uh, somebody come up to you and say, well, you know, I understand you as a Christian believe that salvation in the New Testament is on the basis of a faith in Christ. But in the Old Testament, it was on the basis of works and sacrifice and keeping the law of Moses. And now being able from Genesis chapter 4 to say, no, 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 that is not how it operates. All salvation is centered upon Christ all along or to have someone come up to you and say, or even dismiss you, as you would talk to someone and dismiss you with a wave of their hand and say, ah, all of that uh, righteousness on the basis of faith is an invention of the Apostle Paul. And sooner or later you will hear it. And it's important to have what is uh, the, the foundation that comes from Romans chapter 4 to be a part of our Christian lives, and even if we're not able to articulate it to other people, to have it at least protect our own faith and our own confidence in, in the salvation that God has provided in this uh, profoundly beautiful way that Paul does here in chapter 4. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, I am not, and I know I'm not even remotely alone in this room, uh, uh, ever afraid or troubled when you go deep into the things of you in order to show us uh, the foundation of what our confidence in Jesus is built upon. And Father, we know, I think, for all of us in our, our lives is, is something is being built we want to rush through the foundation to the framing and the roof and the sheetrock and the electrical and then uh, to move in and give virtually no thought to the foundation until one day some question is asked of us or, or one day some great trial comes into our life and shakes us at our core and drives us to the foundation of our faith. And Lord, we thank you for chapters like Romans chapter 4 that prepare us for such days and give us the utmost confidence in seasons like that. We thank you this morning as we close this time together in your word for the majesty and the perfection of the salvation that you have provided to us in your Son and for making it, Lord, at great expense to yourself and to him a free gift to us. We bless you this morning from this place for your indescribable gift. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.